0: Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan-Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we are very happy to be speaking with Dia Martin, Managing Director at the U.S. Development Finance Corporation. Dia, it's a pleasure to have you with us today.
1: The pleasure is all mine. I'm I'm really excited to speak with you today, Esther.
0: Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what led you to the USDFC?
1: Wonderful. I love that question. I am originally from Michigan, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I'd always been interested in the world much broader than where I lived or where I grew up. And part of it is being raised in such a a diverse community. Ann Arbor is a college town, so you always see people from so many different parts of the US as well as other countries and globally coming in and out of Ann Arbor. So it was part of that curiosity as a child that I continued to develop And also my parents were very much focused on the community, social justice, and and empowerment of others. And it was that foundation as a family that really led to my interest in development finance. And I'd always been very interested in business and finance. Even at a young age, I was one of those kids that always had different business ideas. I definitely had the lemonade stand the stores. My dad was a psychologist. At one point, my sister and I sold his yellow legal pads, which turned out not to be a good idea because they had writings on them. But it's just part of who I am. So this position that I'm in now gives me a part, gives me an opportunity to integrate all parts of of myself and my work. and, And I'm very passionate about it.
0: That is so funny, Dia. I can imagine you, a little girl on the street with your lemonade stand and your legal pads with like people's therapy on it. (laughs) Fantastic. So what did you study in school? Did you go into a finance kind of business track?
1: Exactly. Undergrad, I studied finance. Again, I'm from Michigan, the auto industry, and I remember one night watching the news and seeing the stock market on it and actually seeing a trading floor. And I was just mesmerized. So I knew when I went to grad school, I wanted to study finance and I wanted to work on Wall Street immediately after grad school. So that was my goal in undergrad when I went to Hampton University.
0: Excellent. And so did you go to Wall Street and did you make it onto a trading floor?
1: Yes, I did. So one of the things that I always uh, talk about, especially when I talk to young people, is because that was my goal, I was always on the lookout for opportunities. And it was, I think it was serendipity. I actually had not intended to go to an info session, but saw a flyer the day of my freshman year at Hampton. And I heard about this program called SEO, Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. I went to the info session and I heard about their program to bring students to summer internships in Wall Street. And I actually waited. I was a freshman. I waited until my sophomore year to apply, made sure I had the grades and everything to apply and get the internship. And I ended up working in equity research. At, and this dates me a little bit at Lehman Brothers um, as my first opportunity working on Wall Street.
0: And what was that like? Because we've had previous guests on the podcast talking about those Wolf of Wall Street days where it was just crazy. And it was also very difficult to be a woman. Did you get there after that period? Or was the atmosphere still like that by the time you, you arrived?
1: I felt that I was very fortunate. I always had mentors or or people that were very, I guess, very much wanting me to do well and and also looking out for me. So my first internship was a wonderful experience. I recently had an exchange with the woman that I interned for, who was actually one of the youngest equity research analysts at Lehman Brothers. So it was a very good, good summer, had a great relationship with her and the internship program that I was in, they had several events. And there were, I want to say, close to over 50 of us that were interns. So we had a great network that we could support each other and share with each other.
0: And how long did you stay in private sector finance before you shifted over to the government?
1: Yes. So I actually, I, I worked for three years at J.P. Morgan, went back to grad school, and I went to Wharton and SIS. I studied finance and international relations. And after grad school, I worked in the private sector for approximately, I believe, five years. I worked at a Citibank as well as Moody's Investor Service. And at that point, my passion was in global development. I always, again, wanted to return to the community, specifically looking at sub-Saharan Africa. So I made the natural decision to do the Robert Bosch Foundation Fellowship in Germany, And it's a really interesting story in that I saw with this fellowship, I could actually work with the German development bank. And I saw that they had different areas of focus. And obviously, one of the areas was sub-Saharan Africa. So I went on the fellowship and actually applied to be a fellow at DEG, which is the development finance bank in, in Germany.
0: And so you went to Germany to learn about investing in Africa. What was that like?
1: It was, it was a very eye-opening experience. So I went for a one-year fellowship. I did part of my fellowship, I believe it was like three or four months at DEG. I then did the second part of my fellowship at an organization called the Frankfurt School of Finance, where I focused, and at DEG, I focused on Sub-Saharan Africa, but at the Frankfurt School of Finance, I focused on Eastern Europe. So completely different than what I, I started out doing, but it was such an amazing opportunity a wonderful team, and at the Frankfurt School of Finance I actually decided to stay in Germany after my fellowship ended, where I was able to work on structuring a microfinance fund for Sub-Saharan Africa, and then moving with a large part of that team to a company called Finance in Motion, which now manages over a billion dollars of assets in, in a lot of the emerging markets that I work in. So it was a very fruitful, wonderful experience. I was in Germany for three years before coming back to the DFC, which was OPIC at that time. And I also have to give a special mention to DFC because during my spring semester at SICE I interned at the DFC. So I I knew the agency and I really was a big fan of their work and excited to come back. And so
0: at that time, really this idea of using development finance to make for-profit investments was really limited to development banks. Can you tell us how that kind of has changed in the time that you've been working in this area?
1: It's changed a lot. And it's even, so one, I want to say the perspective of the development banks has changed in their role in finance. So one of the things that I saw personally is, I started out in Germany focused very much on microfinance. When I came back to DFC, we were also very much focused on microfinance funds and investing in individual institutions. And what we started to see was this move to microfinance plus healthcare, plus education. And we also saw that involve into direct investments in companies. And that is where we have evolved as a DFI so Previously, we're focused on microfinance. You saw larger project finance types of transactions. Now you see all of this activity in individual direct investment in startups and scaling enterprises and and also innovative financing structures so that you cross the boundary of public and private finance and and support nonprofits that have somewhat of a business or economic development mandate. So the world of impact investing has really blossomed, and the areas I see that most are in the different financing structures, as well as the types of institutions that are funded. And you see it in the DFI space, the public sector space, but also in the private sector space, you see a lot more commercial investors that are interested in development finance because it is at its core good business.
0: That's great to hear, Dia. We've also seen the uptake of interest We haven't seen, however, corresponding asset allocation into the poorest countries where we work. And I know DFC has a real focus on emerging markets as well. So please tell us about some of the challenges of trying to attract that private sector financing, even as a government entity with you guys have, I think about $60 billion a year, but it's still hard to attract that commercial money in. Why is that?
1: Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that question because that question really gets to the heart of the DFC mandate. So the DFC is a relatively new government agency. We started in 2020 and the core part of our mandate is to have that development impact, to focus on those lower income and lower middle income countries that haven't seen as much investment. And the way we try to do it is at the heart of everything that we do. So, one of the first things is we have a roadmap for impact. And one of our specific targets in that is to allocate 60% of our capital to these countries that haven't seen as much investment. And then there's also a focus on the areas of critical need for these countries. So, I just want to be clear we have a total portfolio right now of about 30 billion. And we have an allocation of up to 60 billion over the next, I believe, we have five or so remaining years for that allocation. And we have five strategic focus areas. And as you can imagine, these are all what I consider to be extremely impactful. This is climate, which is very important globally, and feel there's a lot of opportunities to leapfrog in some of the countries that we work in. Healthcare, which given the COVID-19 pandemic, is extremely important. We also have technology, critical and we think going to be a game changer when it comes to development, inclusive growth, which in our uh, mind is improving the lot and the fate of everyone when we go in and invest in development. And then one that is personally extremely important to me is our focus on women with our 2X initiative. So we have continued to focus on that and we'll continue to do more and, and really lean in on that.
0: Great. And thank you for correcting my numbers there, Dia. So it looks like you guys are moving out maybe $5 billion out the door every year. We know that in these markets, that's still a lot of money. Are you having trouble allocating it? And what is the divide between, say, funds, fund of funds direct investment, equity, debt that you're looking at with that DFC? Mm
1: -hmm. So we definitely, our history has been in debt. So we've been lenders for over 40 years. Um, uh, OPEC, now DFC, has been around since before I was born. So we have a very strong and long history of lending. Now, as the DFC is a new agency, we're able to make equity investments, and we also have an opportunity to provide technical assistance. And so you'll see us continue to grow and and build our portfolio and our knowledge in those areas, and we'll continue to be very strong lenders in our markets. And you see a real um, mix with our portfolio. We have an investment funds department that really focuses on those larger private equity funds and moving capital capital to those funds so that they could support companies in those markets. And then we work across the spectrum from deals as large as $500 million to, in my team, we've worked on deals as small as $1 million. So you see a diversity in our portfolio and the types of deals that we do and the impact that we can have. So I'd say we're not going to have a problem making those sound investments, and we're really excited about that
0: great. And when you mention your team, that's the social finance enterprise team. And I believe that focuses on earlier stage companies. Why don't you tell us why that your team has that particular focus?
1: Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just really excited about our team. And, and I should say our team has 11 investment officers. And On our team, it's led by three individuals, three managing directors, myself and my colleagues, Lauren Rodwin and Richard Greenberg. And we started out a little bit over a decade ago, again, as the microfinance team. And over that time, we've expanded, continuing to work in microfinance, but also continuing to move in so many other sectors. So we've done deals in healthcare and agriculture and fintech, and it's really been exciting. And I'd say as a team, um, I believe over the past few years, we've, I guess, completed close to a billion in, in transactions among our team. And what's really exciting is we work on a lot of the smaller, earlier stage deals, but we also have the opportunity to do larger deals. And some of the deals that I would mention that are highlights that are large are transaction with MFX, which provides hedging globally, especially for SMEs in some of the countries that we've been discussing. Some of the other exciting deals are our water equity transaction, which supports the wash sector, and also some other larger microfinance or fund deals For the smaller deals, this really gets to the heart of what I love to do and what I'm very passionate about, and that's our Portfolio for Impact and Innovation program. And that's the program that I I lead along with a team at the DFC. And this program, we've committed over 200 million across approximately 40 companies. And it's an extremely diverse portfolio of some very early stage deals that have gone on to raise large amounts of capital and have a really positive social impact. And just if I can highlight two of those deals, one of the deals I'm most proud about is Greenlight Planet. It was one of our first transactions under the Portfolio for Impact program. We provided a small loan, one of the first institutional lenders to Greenlight Planet. And they've gone on to attract, I would say, over 100 million in debt and equity investment in the company. They've done a phenomenal job. And then the second transaction, which I think speaks to the power of blended finance and the power of partnerships, is a fairly small deal. It was about $2 million for the Cameroon Cataract loan. And that's where we supported a development impact bond to create the first Cat- Cataract Hospital in Cameroon. And that transaction has done really well. We've worked with notable foundations such as the Hilton Foundation, Sight Savers, and the Fred, Fred Hollows Foundation to, to make that transaction happen, as well as the Magrabi Foundation, which supported the construction of the hospital. So really diverse deals and exciting transactions in our team.
0: That's fantastic, Dia. So I know that DFC has the mandate to earn money on its investments. What is the interest rate that you're aiming for across the portfolio of your investments or the, the gain that you're looking to make on the DFC money invested?
1: So I think really we take a view of our returns are, are, are diverse and, and it reflects our projects. So we look at the type of projects that we finance, how the financing will be used, how the company will be able to manage that financing with, the, with their corresponding cash flows. So I wouldn't say there's this rate or that rate. I think it's something that we think very hard about and we look at it on a case-by-case basis for each project. But I think it's a very important part of our analysis and also how we want to make an impact because we want to work alongside and partner with the private sector. I think that's really important that we see ourselves as partners and in not in any way displacing the private sector actors that we often collaborate with.
0: Absolutely. And this is a very live discussion at UNCDF and among other actors in this space. What is when does your rate stop becoming concessionary and become distortionary and actually crowd out uh, private sector money instead of crowding it in? So we know that you're paying a lot of attention to this issue as well. So Dia, how does the DFC define and measure the social impact that it looks for from its investments?
1: Mm -hmm. That's That's also a great question. And that's something that we spent a lot of time on as we transitioned to the DFC. And so we have what we call our IQ system And this is how we measure the impact for each and every deal that we work on. And this system looks at the project and it will score each project based on certain metrics to determine its overall impact score if a project is highly developmental versus being developmental. And when we look at the IQ score, we look at a few different areas to really determine where the project will have what I wanna say is the most impact. So we look at growth and the project's potential to contribute to the economic growth of the country or its community. We look at inclusion, that could be a potential area where a project is very strong and it provides access to services that it wouldn't ordinarily provide. And we also look at innovation, which I, I really like that idea and ways that we could advance new technologies or ways of doing business or even financing structures to mobilize private capital and to have a developmental impact. And then the other aspect of our IQ system that I really love is it's very live and iterative. And what I mean by that is evaluations are judged over time So that we can look at potential outsize or positive impact, but also any unintended negative consequences of the project and adjust the project's score or our evaluation of it internally. So it's a very live scoring system that we have.
0: That's great. And we know that for fund managers and investors that are trying to create their kind of impact tracking and metric systems, This is a great example of looking at it over a time span and not at a key point that I come to you and ask you to fill out a questionnaire once a year and then judge you on how you're doing on that particular date because especially for these early stage um, enterprises, we know they go through tons of change and one month could be great and another month COVID could happen and things could be terrible. That's a great lesson for our audience. Can you tell us a bit more, Dia, about how DFC focuses specifically on the needs of women in the 2X program?
1: Yeah, so for 2X, what I... I see the DFC as being a leader in, in our, our 2X initiative, which we now consider part of the DNA of DFC. It's more than an initiative. It's part of our programming. It's something that we look at in every deal. And we've been very successful in it, in my opinion, since we started the initiative. So we have actually catalyzed, by latest estimates, over $7 billion in capital to 2X initiative businesses. And these are businesses where we believe women are leaders, they're founders, they're part of the management team, the governance or the products of the business support women. So this is something that's very important to us and part of our diligence process. And we've also looked at the unique aspects of this program as it relates to women in different regions, because we recognize the needs might be different. So we've successfully launched a 2X for the MENA region, a 2X for Africa, and a 2X platform for Latin America, and have been very excited about this. When we think about women, we view it as this is truly the world's largest emerging market. It's not a country or region. It's tapping into the resources and the power of the women across the world. And being a catalyst for that is extremely important to the DFC. We've also um, seen our role as a leader in this space and have endeavored to work with our, our sister DFIs, globally so that means across the world in europe and in africa to continue to build on this program and really support gender equity and empowerment as a part of doing business with the dfc fantastic
0: seven billion is a big headline number and we know from our work in the space and just being in the un and development system that this made huge waves and was really a leader for not only development finance institutions, but impact investors to show the direction of travel and where the DFC saw that there were opportunities going forward. So is there an investment, Dia, that you made that surprised you the most? And if so,
1: why? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. And when I was trying to go back and think about specific investments, I wouldn't say that there was one that came to mind that, oh, this is the biggest surprise. But what I thought about were the characteristics of some of the investments. And this is why I'm so passionate about supporting smaller companies, earlier stage companies, as what we've seen as some of the companies that need to be the highest risk. Maybe they only had one or two years of a track record. We thought, oh, we want to support them, but we're going to have these requirements to build out the leadership team. Some of those companies, um, because they were innovative, because they were scrappy, have actually turned into very strong banner investments for us, and it's not just about financial performance, but it's also about how they've empowered their customers, they've provided access to education, to financial services, for their customers, as well as empowering their staff and growing as a business model that is uh, scalable and able to be replicated outside of their country and outside of their region. So I'd say probably what surprised me the most is the power of a small amount of capital to generate impact and economic return. That's fantastic.
0: I love the idea of the scrappy underdog that kind of takes you by surprise, right? You're not betting on them to succeed and then they do. And then is there a great investment that you wish you had made? Is there one that got away?
1: So I am saying this, I feel that as a DFI, it's very important for us to make sure that we're very thoughtful and careful and are very well aware of the risk when undertaking investments and transactions and i always feel that we could push the envelope a little bit more and be a little bit more forward-leaning in in taking risk and making new investments. And one of the areas that's personally important to me is to support uh, first-time fund managers and also to support fund management teams. So I'm really excited about a lot of the conversations that we're having around that. And I think there's definitely more to come there. But to me, that would be what I would recommend is just taking more risk and taking an opportunity to go first more. I think that's where we really add value and make a difference.
0: And we would absolutely agree because we know that there are so many DFIs that are quite restricted by the limitations that are put on them, where their mandate is to invest in very poor markets or developing economies or difficult Economies, but then they also have very strict mandates on how the money can be used, and then what return is being expected. So it really puts a lot of limits on your ability to act. And we have seen firsthand the the demonstration effect when a DFI makes a decision. So we would love to see you guys be more aggressive and and take more leadership positions there. So Dia, as we think about wrapping up, what one thing would you change if you could to accelerate the growth of the field of impact investing, especially in emerging markets, and especially to smaller emerging companies?
1: That is a great question. I would say for me, it would be putting more empowerment and decision-making at the local level, in the country, in the communities for those that we want to use the capital to support. And I see this as a trend overall and, and the impact space. And also you can see this in the donor community is the ability and the willingness to empower those that will benefit from the capital to be able to make the decision of decisions about how it's used. So if that's one thing that I would like to see happen, if there was one thing I could wish to happen, that would be it, to have a more inclusive decision-making process and use that inclusive process to empower those that we want to serve.
0: And can I ask you to just map out how would that work for us? For example, DFC is in Washington. You guys Mm -hmm. are making your decisions in Washington. So how would you bring more of your recipients into the decision-making process around DFC finance, for example?
1: So in a lot of ways, we are doing it, and I just want to highlight that. So I think, let me give you three different ways. Our mindset. When I talked about the five prongs of our strategy, there are two that really stand out. The first one is inclusive growth and having that inclusive mindset as we support companies as the DFC. And the second one is technology and using that technology as a tool for empowerment. So that's the mindset that we have to have then there's the practical operations i feel as the dfc in a lot of ways we're doing that we actually have staff now on the ground locally in sub-saharan africa and asia which is really exciting and we're able to benefit from those staff members as far as getting market intelligence and finding about new opportunities for investment and then the second one i'd say is again looking at those local um, fund managers or allocators of capital. I think that's really important and to continue to do more of that. And then the third, I I definitely have to to mention this again, with the portfolio for impact and innovation, one of the advantages of that program is our range is smaller than the typical ticket size for the DFC. So we go up to 10 million in financing And you will see at the smaller end, when you start thinking about the loans from one to five million, that empowers us to be able to invest in those smaller companies, those um, local startups or companies that are scaling, but they might not have already the international investors or backing. So that allows us to come in early and empower those local entrepreneurs um, as a first mover.
0: That's fantastic. And we know from talking with our clients on the ground that this is one of their great frustrations, that a lot of fund managers from emerging markets find it so difficult to access pools of capital that are the size they need, the kind of shape they need, the form they need. So it's really terrific what you've been doing with that program. So thank you so much, Dia, for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Esther, as always.
0: And thank you to our listeners for joining us on UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.